0: Beyond the Mic with Sean Dillon. We're joined on the Starline by a Pulitzer Prize-winning author, one half of the most honored team of investigative reporters in America. His latest book is America, What Went Wrong, The Crisis Deepens. It's an honor to welcome James B. Steele.
1: Well, glad to be with you, Sean.
0: Let's go beyond the mic. You and your writing partner, Donald Bartlett, wrote the original version, American What Went Wrong, back in 1991, filled with powerful stories of humanity and back with government sources. What was the reasoning behind writing the original book?
1: The original book didn't start out to be the big story it ended up. It started out on a much more limited basis. There were a lot of stories in the 1980s about companies being taken over. There was a lot of Wall Street machinations involved. That Debt was supposedly a very positive force toward remaking the American economy. So the way Don and I have almost Always operated over the years is we don't start out with a set idea. We just we start testing a hypothesis. So we were curious: what is behind this movement? Why are these? What is all this internal uh, machinations? What's it about? What are the consequences? So after we began looking specifically at companies, and then going out and interviewing uh, people—maybe factory workers, might be retail workers, might be mid-level managers. Uh, in some cases, upper managers. Uh, and we found out what was happening to these people, how they were losing their jobs, that maybe they found new jobs that didn't pay as much, they lost some of their benefits. Anyway, what emerged was that working-class people, middle-class people, were suddenly seeing their incomes being driven down. From that, we began looking at the data, everything from median family income to Tax data about what people were making, and we could see how money was flowing overwhelmingly to the top four to five percent of America. It was later on in the '90s that I began writing about the top one percent, which, of course, has been much more popular in recent years. But that was the original uh, spark grew from a much more limited idea. But we saw from our reporting that it was a much bigger story. That led us into what was happening to incomes, what was happening to health benefits, what was happening to retirement funds, really what was happening to a way of life of really millions of just average American people.
0: Talk about the significance of your partnership riding with Donald Bartlett.
1: Don and I worked together for more than four decades, and one of the great advantages was that we saw things very similar. We were very much interested in what was happening to average Americans financially. We believed that people should be treated fairly. We were always skeptical of official statements, sometimes from politicians of both parties, as to how well things were going on. So it was a certain kind of similarity of interest and view of the world that led us into a lot of these subjects. And... Unlike a lot of reporting partnership, one of us wasn't the writer and the other reporter. We both always enjoyed reporting. In fact, we always described this as being, we loved reporting means we're of sound mind. Neither one of us were particularly crazy about writing further evidence that we were of sound mind. But anyway, it was this similarity of interests and the fact we divided the material as best we could uh, at every step of the way that was the basis of probably the longest-running journalism partnership ever in America. That was what knitted it together, and whether we were writing this series or book or one of the others that we had uh, tackled over the years.
0: You have two Pulitzers, two National Magazine Awards, five George Polk Awards for your over 35 years of service to the Philadelphia Inquirer, Time, and Vanity Fair. What's the one story that haunts you even to this day?
1: You know, it's like sometimes your stories, I guess, are like if you had nine or ten kids, sometimes it'd be hard to pick (laughs) who's your favorite. Uh, I think one of the stories that, I wouldn't say haunting us, but um, one of the ones we've never really been able to get out of our mind was uh, when we were actually time we wrote a story, a whole series on campaign finance abuses. And one of the stories was about personal bankruptcy reform. The credit card companies and various other financial interests were pushing to change the laws to make it a lot tougher to file for bankruptcy. And this is a case where we decided to test the hypotheses. The story coming out of Washington was that there's all kinds of people abusing the bankruptcy laws or going to the Bahamas living off their credit cards, and then they come back and they get the debt dis- dismissed, and then they go out and get another credit card and go back to the Bahamas, etc So we said, okay, what's really going on here? Well, yeah, there were some abuses, but overwhelmingly, the number of people who were filing for bankruptcy were single women. They were young women whose husbands had left them or who they'd become divorced for various reasons. They were older women who, in many cases, their husbands had died. And they ended up with some very high medical bills. Uh, In most cases, medical bills were very often what was driving this. The contrast between what was coming out of Washington about the need to reform this abuse versus the reality on the field, I mean, on the field, but I mean at the ground level, uh, was so shocking and so different. So that's one story that I think Don and I are very, very proud of to this day because. It kind of goes to the heart of our bios as journalists uh, and to show exactly what's happening with with a big, very important public
0: issue. You've lectured at many universities. What challenges are higher education institutes facing with this pandemic? Well, this
1: is a great question. And one, I talk to a lot of folks in various universities that I deal with on a regular basis. Temple University is one of the most important for me partly because I'm still based in Philadelphia, uh, but also Princeton, where I do some uh, lecturing almost every year, and and other places as well. I mean, they're all going through this terrible problem, even putting finance aside. What happens to students when you're not in a classroom? What happens when you can't have the normal interchange that you want to have between a teacher and students? I mean, I guess the good news is we do have these amazing programs right now that through the Internet let us continue to lecture and discuss and, and communicate with students. So that is definitely a plus. But it's it's not a good solution, the one-on-one or, or let's say, teacher-small class bonding that you really get on campus. So I think we're just going to all have to get through this for the next probably year or so. And I feel so badly for all of those students who are coming into college for the first time and those who are graduating this year, and those who, be, who will obviously be in between. It's just not a fate anybody ever thought they'd have to deal with. There's not much we can do about it other than you know, bite the bullet and get
0: through it. How has your role of investigative reporter changed from the golden years of reporting to today?
1: You know, I think some of the, the basic concepts are kind of the same issues of fairness, tripping away hypocrisy by public officials or private officials who try to fool the public. Those kinds of things are still very, very strong. I think one of the biggest problems anymore is it seems like the the multitude of lying or attempts to fool the public seem to be multiplied. And so the job of keeping on top of that as a journalist is more demanding than ever because people in power know the Democrats or Republicans or corporate leaders, folks who had big nonprofits, people in power always want to project the most positive image they can about whatever it is they're doing. That's kind of human nature. But our business as journalists has always been to keep them honest when they were fudging the facts or being just plain dishonest. It seems like that job is bigger than ever, and I don't know whether or not this is because all the outlets for news have multiplied. It's now; and it's not just written, it's not uh, just TV, it's certainly the internet, it's just the magnitude of all of these uh, avenues by which information comes to the public, is, it's just exploded. So that job is greater than ever. Uh, it's not different than what we used to do, it's just a lot
0: As you updated America Went Went Wrong for a New Generation, what emotions did you encounter while discovering updates on people you covered over 30 years ago? For example, Barbara Joel Whitehouse or Molly James. There were more than just sources. There were people trying to live their lives. Talk about catching up with their families.
1: Well, it's interesting that you had mentioned those two. One, an African-American woman. The other, a Caucasian woman. savings for one reason or another, and both now have passed away, and both made tremendous impressions on on Don and me for various reasons. Uh, I'll tell you one story about Barbara Whitehouse, uh, which I've never forgotten, because she had lost her, basically in effect, her retirement savings. Her husband had been killed in a trucking accident. Actually, apparently the truck was not properly maintained because of trucking deregulation. The company had cut all kinds of corners. And the company was not funding uh, its workers' comp program, which she should have been entitled to a monthly payment after his unfortunate death, but because it went into bankruptcy, and the bankruptcy judge forgave it anyway. So she was stuck with less than $1,000 a month in Social Security payments. She lived in a mobile home park uh, outside of Salt Lake City, and I asked her if I could I'd run across her name in a bankruptcy record. And after we wrote the original book, I went back to see her. And I've never forgotten, she was this tiny wisp of a woman who had all kinds of health problems. She had oxygen and other ailments that were bedeviling her. But she took me into her backyard and there was a little shed there. And she opened the door of it and it was filled with cans. And she said, you want to know what that is? And I said, yes. She said, well, I just get social security, that's all I get, and not much of it. So every week I go around the neighborhood and I collect used cans. And every two weeks I take them to a recycler and he gives me thirty dollars. And so every month I get an extra fifty to sixty dollars and she said, That helps me a lot when all I get is this nine hundred and some dollars in Social Security. Those are the kinds of stories you never forget because it's a reminder to someone like me and and Don who are not facing that kind of economic problem just how serious the economic problems are for really a huge amount of the American people. Unless you are dealing with that, you don't know that's out there. But once you see it, you never forget it. One of the statistics in the new book kind of reinforces that. By the way, all we've done, I've always done all our own numbers, analyzing mainly IRS data, census data, Bureau of Economic Analysis data. We don't take numbers from anybody else. One of the exceptions, though, was a study that the Federal Reserve Bank in New York did a couple years ago. And they, after this study, where they polled people all over the country, they concluded that almost half of Americans, if confronted with a $400 suddenly emergency expenditure wouldn't have the money to cover that expense. I mean, does that tell you where half or more of this country is in terms of their economic well-being, or I should say unwell-being? And we saw this dramatically during the coronavirus. When people got laid off a week or two later, you saw the lines of trucks uh, waiting to get boxes of food. I mean, these weren't people rounded up under viaducts who were homeless. You know, these were working Americans who suddenly lost their jobs and had no savings because they were not making enough money to save anything. So those are the stories you never forget.
0: Where would you consider your job as an investigative reporter complete?
1: Well, this is, a, this is one of those eternal questions. Honestly, I never feel it's really complete. No matter how far you dig into something, there always appear to be other avenues that you could pursue. I think at a certain point, you just go as far as you can toward nailing down as much as you can, and then you put it out there. Don and I did a piece for Vanity Fair maybe 10 years ago on it was called Billions Over Baghdad, and it was about the airlift the billions of dollars from the U.S. to Iraq after the invasion so that people had money to walk around with that didn't have Saddam Hussein's picture on it. Well, it's one of the most intriguing and interesting stories we ever did. It's it's on our website, or... I mean, you can find it if you want to look at it. But anyway, we never got to the bottom of where all of that money went. We were able to find out where some of it went. And uh, probably could have worked another 10 years and maybe never found it. So in every story, there's... there's can't always get everything. You go as far as you can, do as much as you can, and then somebody says, okay, Jim, time to write. <laughs> so so anyway, I, I and I think i I talked to a lot of colleagues over the years on this, and I think a lot of us feel the same way. There's never that moment where the light goes on and you say, okay, that's done. There's always more out there. You just have to make the decision to wind it up at some point as best
0: you can. Time's running out, so it's time for the Rocky 8. Eight random rapid-fire questions. <laughs> Answer with the first thing that comes to your mind. There is no pressure. Favorite sports team?
1: Philadelphia Phillies.
0: Time of the day, you're getting the most writing done.
1: In the morning.
0: What's the one thing students must learn before they hit the workforce?
1: To be curious.
0: How about your favorite season? Oh, fall. What was your first job growing up?
1: Mowing yards for neighbors.
0: How about the best gift you got from your wife?
1: Uh, A watch that she bought on a trip to Europe
0: with her mother. Favorite place to vacation?
1: A trip that my wife and I once took to Italy.
0: And your favorite author to read? Oh gosh, geez.
1: I guess with fiction, it would be Faulkner.
0: His latest book is America, What Went Wrong? The Crisis Deepens. He is one half the most honored team of investigative reporters in America. Our friend, James B. Steele, thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Thank you so much, John. Thank you for inviting me to your program. Enjoyed it very much.
0: And that, my friends, is Beyond the Mic.